And we are back. Thank you guys so much for joining us. And uh, <clears throat> this is this is a little bit different. So th- this will be our interview for the week. And we actually have two guests uh, on right now. And uh, thank them both for doing it. it. It was last minute, and they were kind enough to agree to jump on. And um, we're, we're going to do an extended interview, but we're only going to air about 10 to 10, 12 to 15 minutes of this on the actual show. But the reason we're going to have that 10 to or 12 to 15 minutes on the show is a, we, we really want to take this opportunity to educate people and, and so they can better understand what is currently going on, especially as it relates to energy markets. There is so much misinformation out there and so little understanding. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I don't mean it you know, uh, uh, with a finger pointed at all. I just mean that there is a lot of ignorance, just simple ignorance, just not understanding how oil markets work, how refineries work, how gasoline gets priced. Um, and I, I, I fear that we're letting, and you know, this has got a long way to go, obviously still, but I feel that we're letting those responsible off the hook when we're having all this price gouging and all this other kind of discussion. So to put that issue to rest uh, and, and to explain to people what is actually going on, we're, we're lucky enough to be joined today by Chase Taylor, my, my, my maven of macro. Uh, many been on the show many times, but Chase, thanks so much for joining us today, man. Yeah, always a pleasure. Glad to be on. Thanks. You bet. And then also Josh Young. Uh, the CEO and proprietor of Bison Interests. We've had Josh on. He's been on CNBC, Bloomberg. He's been all over the place. Um, he's having an incredible run um, in energy markets. And, and again, we, I think we just had him on a month, month and a half ago. So, Josh, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me back. You bet. And, and so, guys, we'll just kick it off really quick. First, Josh, I'd like to start with you on this one. Can, can you just, and we'll kind of get into the finer points as it regards to all this discussion about price gouging and what did what did one of them call them? Uh, Ill, not, it wasn't illicit, but extreme profits or something like this. Um, just would you briefly explain to us how oil and distillates get priced, and uh, and then and then you know kind of lay out how that all works. And then we can get into the price gouging discussion. But just just for the edification of the listeners, can you explain to them how that global market works? It's a it's a funny day for this uh, topic because uh, oil is getting taken to the woodshed <laughs> and oil and gas equities are crashing. And so uh, you mentioned excess profits and, you know, it's hard to not think about there being a risk premium associated with investing in oil, producing oil, selling it. Um, so, you know, I, I couldn't I couldn't not say something about that. And, uh, you know, I think it's very important for this conversation, because um, if there's going to be a lot of volatility and if part of it's driven by regulation and part of it's driven by sort of government encouraged divestment, which drives extra volatility and extra price, short term price volatility and risk. Um, you know, there have to be higher returns. And that's not excess. That's just purely super high level. If you introduce more uncertainty and more volatility, you're going to have a necessary higher level of return 
just to make up for it, just to encourage enough investment and activity to be able to supply whatever the thing is that's necessary. And then, could well, could, couldn't agree more. Um, and then how, so oil, I think, I think most people have an understanding of the way that the oil market works and how it gets priced. It's a global market. It goes for what it goes for. Oil companies do not set that, uh, do not set that price. And if people don't understand that, then I, I'm not sure that we can help them because that's a pretty simple, you know, Josh, the way what I've told a couple of our clients on this topic and, and tell me if I'm right or wrong, but I'm like, guys, does, does OPEC have a modicum of control on price? Sure. Uh, what is Chevron's pricing power in, 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 for the global oil market compared to OPEC? I mean, it's virtually non-existent, right? Yeah, yeah, and and my bad for kind of taking us off track from a from a pure sort of uh, market dynamic and price perspective, but but yeah, I mean, I think it's so interesting to see uh, politicians and regulators get upset with companies that have like two percent or three percent market share max when they give passes to companies in other industries that might have 10 times or 20 times that market share. So it's just, it's a very weird thing to see people picking on Exxon or Chevron at two or 3% market share when, you know, XYZ tech company or other company might have, you know, 20% plus of the market. Yeah. And, and uh, I don't, I didn't hear anybody calling Apple at the peak. You know, I didn't hear anybody calling uh, their profits obscene. Um, it's just, it's, it's funny to me how that works. Okay. So now, and, and, and I'm interested to pick your brain a little bit on this topic as well, because I, I understand the basics, but not some of the more intricacies of it. Um, when you look at refiners today, can you walk us through what is, what is creating these record profits? Like the mechanics of it, what, how, how do refiners make their profits and are they price gouging? So, so just as a caveat, I'm more focused on the upstream industry. I can explain this, but there's some risk that I might get some detail or aspect of it slightly wrong. So just okay. a, a fair, fair warning. Um, so the way refineries, <laughs> having said that, I will confidently plow ahead. So um, <laughs> the way refineries make money is, and the way their business works is basically, if you think about it as an input and output, the input is... Uh, crude oil, as well as uh, frequently some sort of power, natural gas, some other uh, inputs to to power the process. Um, and then the output is gasoline and diesel, as well as um, other refined products and some, I guess, perceived waste products that can get turned into asphalt or uh, that used to get used for powering uh, ships, very heavy sort of uh, stuff that would get burned and very polluting. So the the simple way to uh, estimate refining profits is to look at the crack spread. Um, and so very high level, there's this 3-2-1 spread, which is um, that three barrels of oil would get turned into uh, two barrels of gasoline and one barrel of diesel. And it's not perfect and there's some volume loss, but it's just, it's a sort of industry heuristic and it, it gives you an idea of approximately what sort of the industry profits might be on the refining side. And what, what's kind of gotten people's attention, I think, is that you had uh, crack spreads around, let's say $10 a barrel. So refineries making about $10 of sort of gross margin um, on 
their refining process from oil to their main products. And that blew out. I think the high recently was $70 a barrel. So um, similar sort of move to what you saw for uh, lumber, where the tree prices didn't necessarily, uh, the raw lumber didn't uh, rise that much. But when it came out of a sawmill, you saw prices go parabolic too. Um, and so that, again, just super high level, turning oil into end products and then uh, selling it to gas stations. And you know you see people upset with gas stations and gas station companies. Frequently, they break even roughly um, on their gasoline and or diesel and then make money as essentially a convenience store or they'll earn like one or two percent profit or something on their gasoline. So uh, I think that just displays sort of uh, misunderstanding of what's happening as well as who's actually making money on this stuff. So uh, thank you, Josh. Ch- Chase, flipping to you now, when I hear Josh lay that out, and in my, you know, looking at it in the way from my financial lens, what, what that tells me when I hear crack spreads blowing out and refiners making, more, uh, 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 you know, record profits or near record profits, my mind doesn't go to price gouging. My mind immediately goes to capacity. Um, and, and I could be wrong. I don't know this. But, but hearing that story laid out, it leads me to believe I immediately jump to the whole capacity issue. Has there been capacity taken offline? Because that's, that's where my mind goes, right? Supply and demand. That would suggest to me that there's been capacity on the refining side taken offline. Is that what explains this jump in, in, in the cost of distillates and gasoline? And, and, um, and if so, my understanding of it as well is that current gasoline prices and diesel prices are reflecting much higher oil, uh, much higher oil prices than where oil is currently at, correct? Yeah, that's, that's all true. We have had some refining capacity losses, especially in the West. Um, I think a lot of people are taking the refinery capacity issue a little too far. If you, if you look globally, I mean, Asia and the Middle East have, have pretty significant capacity, especially China. They have more than the U.S. now. Um, and there are some there are some big projects that will come online in the next couple of years. They're just none of them are in the West. Like in America, we haven't. I don't think we've opened a new refinery in you know decades. Um, but but yeah, that, that is, that's a big part of it. Another part I think is all of a sudden, whenever you know Europe tried to back away from, or really the, the entire Western world tried to back away from, not just Russian crude but products. All of a sudden, you saw kind of demand for U.S. products start moving higher. So a lot of ours started to get exported. We didn't have enough in storage. So the, there's just all these different things kind of hitting all at the same time in different ways to really squeeze supply in the U.S., especially diesel, but, but, which is why it's even higher than gasoline, but, uh, but gasoline as well. It just, it's just pure supply and demand. And I think Josh's lumber analogy is the perfect analogy where, I mean, many things in the economy you could have the feedstock price not move that much but the output price move that you know significantly just because the supply and demand for gasoline isn't just you know it's not exactly the same as the supply and demand for oil they're usually similar but they're not the same so you can have a mismatch in one and not really in the other and that's i think that's been a big driver here um and and moving forward you could have a situation where you know the kind of the, kind of the opposite clap happens where Oil holds reasonably firm, but then product prices kind of really come back down to earth, um, which I think 
we could be we, I think we could see is if we have a global recession and, and China starts to really move their uh, re- refinery output a lot higher, which they're starting to, I, I think you could see where you get a decent recovery in, in, in product inventories and kind of bring that spread back down to earth. So when they're talk, when, when when all of this talk, and and I'll go to Josh after this too. But Chase, just finish up, just to help the, the listeners understand. Um, how would you? How would you? Well, I'll just throw it to you, Chase. How would you tell somebody if somebody looked at you and said, "Hey," and that's what I'm doing right now, I guess. Uh, hey, Chase, walk me through this. Are these people price gouging? Or is this just market impact? If you can, just illuminate that issue and help educate the listeners on how there is no quote-unquote price gouging going on. Yeah, there's, there's definitely not. Uh, it, you know, if it feels that easy to just to just sit back on on a bunch of on a bunch of products and hold them off the market, you know, and just kind of trickle them in and make a bunch of money, like it, it would just happen all the time. You would you certainly wouldn't see. You know, gas going from three or four dollars back to one as many times as we've seen in history. I still remember being in college and and uh, like around uh, like oh two oh three like that that kind of era where prices went back like under a dollar. I still remember in oh eight whenever they went from really high to really cheap. Those swings are all you know just pure supply and demand driven. I no one's holding anything off the market. If that was the case, you would see oil inventories building rapidly and. You know, you'd see refinery throughput not, you know, kind of like hovering near all-time highs the way they are right now. In fact, I think you could easily argue that refineries are running so hard today in the U.S. They're they're kind of running at extra risk of of you know they're not really doing all the all the proper shutdowns and maintenance they probably should be doing because they're they're just trying to max out and make as much money as they can. Um, and then, you know, of course, instead of getting a high five for that, they're just getting getting drugged through the mud the way the entire fossil fuel industry always seems to be. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, no. It's public enemy number one. Josh, how would you sum it up? If you were at a, if you were at a family barbecue and somebody looked at you and said, well, Josh, I, you're, you know, you're, into those, you're into those dirty energy companies. They're all price gouging. You, you, well, A, I, I have a feeling you'd probably just say something nonchalantly and walk away. Um, <laughs> I just did not waste your time. Uh, but if, you had a, if, you, if somebody asked you, hey, explain to me how this isn't price gouging. Do you have anything to add to what Chase said or, or, or you know, just kind of give us your take on that, the, the little elevator speech, if you will? Sure. So um, I've been at similar uh, gatherings over the last seven plus years, and it's actually been a slightly different question. It's been, a, hey, when are you going to give up on that stuff? It doesn't make any money. Um, go do something, get a real job. And so, um, you know, I think the answer, and it would likely be the same people asking this different question. I think the answer is just to remind them of what the last seven years of being an investor in oil and gas has been like. And so, um, I, you know, I, I, I probably should disengage more and it's something that I'm working on. Uh, <laughs> my tendency is to engage. And I think I would just point out how, like I did at the start of this, that there is a lot of volatility in the sector and that it's necessary to earn money net of all the volatility and to earn enough to make up for all of the pain. And until enough money has been made to make up for all of the pain and then some, uh, you know, you know, you're not at the top of the cycle. 
Yeah, yeah, no, that's a that's a great way to put it. And I, one of the ways that that I've explained it to people on sort of an anecdotal level, is um, I had this discussion with a new client of mine, and he he was asking this question, and I looked at him and I said, um, in the portfolio that you're moving to us, how many oil stocks do you own? And he goes, none. And I go, well, that's kind of your answer, right? Um, you you've got, and 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 that might be a little too simple, and it, and it is, but. Um, it, when you have the situation that you've had uh, economically and on the, in the macro environment for the last you know, 10 years and nobody's touched this stuff, there's been negative net investment, um, you're going to run into shortages, right? It's only, it's only a matter of time. And, um, and, and, and it's not an issue of price gouging. Like you said, these are businesses. I, don't, I didn't hear anybody saying a word when oil went negative 37 regarding the poor oil companies and how many of that move, how many of those people it drove out of business, right? Does, and Josh, I'll ask you this question first. Did that, what, what role do you think, and maybe it didn't even have an impact, but going through COVID, obviously it stacked up inventories and did all this kind of stuff, but what other impacts did that have on the price of oil? Why is it that, this realization is smacking the market in the face right now. Like I said, there's the Russia complication. There's a lot of different converging things. Is it just sort of, I don't want to use the word serendipitous because that, that, that connotates a positive type of spin on it. But um, is this just kind of happenstance that these things, that, that oil is spiking right now, you know, um, and that distillates are going high? Um, is, it, is it just simply a confl- confluence of events? Or did COVID, did that, alter the industry in a way that has made prices higher? So there's a saying that uh, bull markets take as few with them as possible and bear markets take as many with them as possible. And so uh, we had a bear market for oil starting in 2014 and for commodities starting in 2012. And so um, you had a long cycle of underinvestment, and since 2012, there had been underinvestment in long cycle oil and gas uh, in exploration. I think last year we discovered uh, the world oil industry discovered 10% as much oil, uh, new oil, as was produced. And so obviously that's unsustainable. And that was what got me interested and in, in why we launched Bison in 2015, which was to take advantage of this underinvestment trend that we observed. And what happened in 2020 with the forced government shutdowns during COVID is that there were many um, there were many competitors to Bison. There were many funds focused on oil and gas that had held on through until 2020. And then there were many companies that had held on from an upstream and services and midstream perspective. And many of those went away. Uh, they were forced to close or they chose to, to pivot. Um, and then even in 2021, and people forget about this or are busy actively sort of deleting this stuff, there were many energy-focused funds that that were oil funds that sort of pivoted or rebranded as energy alternative or, um, you know, renewable or, you know, Bitcoin mining or whatever. And so um, I, think, I think what happened was that there was this sort of last capitulation washout during and shortly after COVID. And what, what that means is there's fewer people in the industry, there's less service capacity, there's less capital, there's worse track records, there's more perceived risk. And so all of those things together are conspiring to 
uh, a much higher oil price and likely for a lot longer than there might have been uh, had this sort of COVID washout not happened. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Chase, flipping over to you. Where are we at as far as the macro? Um, and, and I, and I want to get Josh's take on this as well. And, um, and Josh, you, you know, guys, feel free to jump in. I, I, I don't want to do this in, in such a rigid structure. I want it to be a little more of a roundtable. So if, even if you're not talking and you've got something to, uh, to inject in the conversation, don't hesitate to do it. Um, but on a macro level, Chase, when we're, when we're looking at energy markets, um, I, was, I was reading an interesting tweet. I'm not really sure who put it out. I can't remember. But they were kind of just going. It was, it, was a, it was just kind of a bullet point list. And they were going down step by step through the different sources of oil, right, the different producers, the levels at which they're producing and saying, okay, you know, Russia's putting this much out there, U.S., kind of going down the, going down the road, and then addressing global demand. And even with the, SP, you know, even with the historic tapping of the SPR, um, when it was laid out for me, like, you know, laid out like that, you're sitting there going, holy smokes, you know, you're still brutally tight as far as the supply demand stuff and we're not seeing anything really coming back online what walk us through that macro setup and how tight are we and how you know is there is there a glimmer of hope on the horizon as far as i mean obviously a recession is going to hit is going to hit demand to some degree but but how tight is this still yeah it's still very tight um at, at the end of the day I mean, you can look at spare spare capacity around the globe, and there are, there are little bits here and there, but it's always kind of been OPEC spare capacity that everyone's viewed as as the sort of get out of jail free card. And I I think we we have really just now started to reach that point where everyone realizes what Josh and and I have been saying for a very long time that they just don't really have it. Um, and then the reason I say we're just not getting there, like the, the crazy thing to me is, is that OPEC themselves, like if, if you just kind of listen to the Saudis, they've been sort of screaming from the rooftops that, you know, they, they've made it clear, I would say, maybe not screaming from the rooftops because they haven't always been explicit about it, but they've made it clear for, I would say, six months that the capacity just isn't there. Obviously, the, the numbers themselves, how much they've underrun, even the, the modest increases they've projected, like that makes it pretty clear. Um, but at the same time, what I will say is the ability to ramp supply globally is there. It, you know, it just takes some, some lead time. Um, obviously, Venezuela, if something productive could happen there in the next three, four years, like that, they have a lot of oil. If you got Iran back online, that would be significant. Um, you know, Nigeria could do way more than they do. There, there's a, a lot of the, a lot of these countries, especially in Africa with, within OPEC, um, you know, they have the ability to do more. It's just, it's just difficult, obviously. Um, Iraq, uh, Kuwait, UAE, like all, all those, like they kind of have some, some, some big dreams to do a lot more in the next five, 10 years. We'll see if they can actually pull it off. But, and I, and I think the U S actually, I think I'm probably more bullish on, on U S production than a lot of people. I, I think we could see uh, U S production kind of surprised to the upside for the first time in a long time but probably more like late this year or, in, or into next year than, than really in the next few months. So the way I see it is probably the next at least year is, is still just going to be super tight. Um, you're, you kind of need a global recession to balance it out. And even that, like it's still going to be tight in, in my opinion, but you can get, you, you can have a situation where you're very tight and prices go down a good bit. 
Um, but it, it's, it's just so easy to imagine that happening. And then as soon as global growth picks back up, you just, you're on a rocket ship. Um, so it's very tight and mostly because the spare capacity coming out of, of OPEC is just, it, I mean, it's, it's historically tight. Yeah. What, what guys, and, and uh, we'll go to Josh first on this. And again, feel free to let it bounce around. What kind of timeline? Let's say, let's say, let's say regulators, legislators, all. Let's say we adopted sane energy policy and unhandcuffed a lot of these companies and said, okay, go fix this problem. Um, how long do you think it would take the industry to get, uh, you know, get production up to a level? where you really stabilize prices and you balance the market. What kind of lead time are we looking at? Best case scenario in terms of getting the production that we actually need, because my understanding of it, and Josh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding of it is not only is it tight, but at current production levels, you know, assuming there isn't a giant hit to demand via global recession or something. um, My understanding is when I, and I, again, the reason I want to have you guys on is because you guys know these markets far better than I do. Um, but my understanding is is that when you look at supply and demand and you look at inventories, I, I think $110 crude is kind of conservative. It, it doesn't seem I, – I think it would be a lot higher. Um, so, A, a am I right or wrong in that take? And then, and then B, you know, like I was telling Chase, how, how, long would, uh, how long would it take to meet that demand? How long would it take for, for production to increase to a level where you'd bring this market back into balance? So, so I think um, it's it's been fun listening to Chase because I think I agree with most of what he says. Um, I, I don't think I agree on the shale uh, ramp up. I think I think shale will grow, but a lot less than consensus. And um, there, there's this uh, issue with drilled uncompleted wells um, building up and and kind of not uh, or sorry uh, depleting and not getting replaced enough and so we we keep seeing more rigs getting added and they're just not there's just not enough drilling activity to replace the completion activity that's bringing wells on so I think uh, also some of the new wells that are getting brought on are getting completed in a way where the initial production is a lot higher, but their decline rates are a lot higher too, sort of matching the backwardation of the uh, of the oil forward curve. Uh, essentially, uh, companies are, if while underwriting to that forward curve where current oil might be 110 and oil a year out might be 90, they're trying to get as much oil now, even if it means they're going to be producing less total oil over the next five years from that well um, by by producing in that way. So I think think the combination of insufficient wells getting completed as well as the essentially style of completion um, changing is is going to lead to disappointment there. Um, And so part of Part of my view is that with shale disappointing, with OPEC plus sort of tapping out from a spare capacity perspective, um, I think it might take a long time to actually ramp back up, especially if oil demand continues to grow. So looking past the current potential recession, um, I think uh, I think it's going to require potentially years and way more investment than we're thinking 
Um, specifically, I'd look at the um, the largest oil services companies, so Halliburton, Baker Hughes, uh, Schlumberger, Weatherford. And when you look at how little they're spending in CapEx and how many years they've underspent on CapEx, that's, I think, a forward indicator for the ability for the industry to actually be able to grow production meaningfully enough to push down price. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and then where is – what – where are we at as far as demand goes um, in terms of the recession? So meaning how – and I don't know if you've done work on this. I'm trying to verbalize it on the run here. But but one of the things that struck me was looking back at the great financial crisis and remembering how how far oil fell, right? I think we got like to a top of 147 and correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to say we settled out during the financial crisis somewhere like around 35. Is that right, Josh? Uh, yeah, something like that. Okay, okay. Um, what what shocked me was when you looked at how much global oil demand dropped, it was much less than I thought. And then the other thing that was shocking, looking back at it, was how quick oil demand rebounded. So what kind of... What kind of elasticity is there in terms of demand? How, how much, you know, if it, it obviously it, it, it depends on the severity of the recession. But have you ever done any work or looked at how much recessions typically impact demand? Uh, yeah, and I imagine Chase has probably done <laughs> more of this than me. Um, I think the thing that's missed in these sorts of terms is we're talking about absolute numbers when a lot of what matters is kind of the first and second derivatives. So, um in 2008, there was an expectation of, let's say, 3 million barrels a day of growth in oil demand that year, and maybe oil demand actually fell a million barrels a day. So it's not that oil, um, it's or, or maybe it fell you know, from the 3 million of growth to 2 million. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's kind of this combination of change from growth uh, so slowdown in growth and then also uh, actual demand destruction. So uh, it, it's, it's important, I think, to, to keep in mind sort of the historic growth rate um, as well as the baseline sort of expected growth rate and demand, which the industry was acting to be able to supply um, along with uh, the actual um, the actual numbers that you see. So the, the headline number of demand down a million barrels a day in 2009 matters a lot less than people in early 2008 making capital decisions, expecting demand rising uh, year over year, and then expecting even more demand in 2009 that didn't materialize. So mm -hmm. when, you, when you factor that in, the, the major price change makes a lot more sense. Okay. Chase, looking at it from a macro level, um, and, and again, we, we, we're, we're guessing at, at a severe – well, we're, we're get, guessing, although I will say on a side note, I think that the recession talk is a lot less guessing, uh, at least from my opinion. I, I, I feel like it's sort of baked into the cake. Um, but, but looking at the way that, that recessions or, or pullbacks in demand or demand destruction or however you want to put it, but in a recessionary environment, typically, what are you looking at? How much, you know, how much does that impact oil demand? And will this time be similar to last time or the, the last times? Because um, the other thing I think about is, you know, I, I see the knee jerk reaction 
funny enough, we actually hedged the vast majority of our exposure on Wednesday because I was concerned about the knee-jerk market reaction, sort of the muscle memory of a market, how it reacts when economic signals are slowing down and the Fed is hiking rates. I I, I was afraid and I I saw there being a risk that there would be this knee-jerk, again, muscle memory type response where, oh, rates are going up, recession's looking like it's on the the blocks, and just fire sell oil. Um, How much – so the question would be then, how much does a recession typically impact and demand? And what is different, if anything, about this time around? Yeah, so in in 2001, it was about 2 million barrels a day globally. In 08, it was about 5 million barrels a day globally from 89 to 84, which is that one. That one was massive. Um, And obviously the COVID one is just completely different. Um, So I would say you need a significant global recession and financial crisis to get to that kind of that 5% level. Okay. And, you know, we're right back to right about a hundred at the moment. Um, so if you wanted to get back down to 95, which would, you know, create probably a pretty healthy balanced market, then it, it takes a, a not small and a not, and a not quick recession. Cause you think about like, Oh, one recession was pretty, pretty narrow versus 08, which lasted kind of over a year. Um, so I think you would need, you know, at least like a nine month thing and it would have to be fairly global, uh, thinking about where all the growth's coming from. That's kind of where you need, you know, a lot of the pain. So China, India, Southeast Asia, you would need to see significant growth headwinds in those places to kind of, to, to truly balance the market. But again, it's that, that situation where I think, I still think you can see prices kind of overreact to the downside. Whereas, you know, you just look at the fundamentals and you, you the, all the barrel counting and everything would still be going pretty well, but you know maybe the price of oil and, and oil equities just wouldn't care. Do you think one? Go ahead, Josh. I'm sorry, I'll, I'll jump in. Just one one thing on that from a demand destruction perspective that I think um, is at least worth addressing here, which is that um, there have been a number of different fuel subsidies and stimuluses that have been enacted by different countries around the world mm-hmm. and different states here in the U.S. in different ways, and so. Um, one of the things I think people are missing here is that uh, the countries and governments aren't kind of giving up on their oil consumption without a fight because declining oil consumption is reflective of dramatic declines in living standards. And, you know, you see it in Sri Lanka where there was insufficient fuel and food and there were widespread riots. So, um, you know, I think I think this time is a little different in that regard. I don't remember there being as many sort of fuel stimuluses and subsidies in past downturns. And I looked for them and couldn't quite find as many. And so I think I think that might be raising the floor in terms of where um, oil prices might go, even in a pretty deep recession. Now, and I wanted to, this is a question I wanted to ask both of you again, but um one of the one of the things that I find really interesting is that is it's just the setup. It's so much different, right, from the things that have happened over the last two to three years, and then with particularly with oil for things that have gone on since for the last eight years, really going back to 2014. But one of the differences, you know, people point to the similarities of this in 2007, and I always kind of shake my head and chuckle because I'm going, "Hey guys, uh, my understanding is, you know, at the end of 2007." 
um, when you had that ramp in oil prices, I mean, production was going full tilt, right? They, they were doing what companies typically do, which is sell as much as you can when the price is high. Um, and when you go into, when you look at the setup this time, you know, people are calling the sim. Oh, you know, we're going. We think we're going into recession and a spike in energy prices prior to recession. That's one of the causes. Um, but the setup is completely different, right? You, you don't. You you just don't have this ramp. You don't have. You've got inventory draws. The market is so much tighter. It isn't isn't the condition? And let's assume. Let's bake into the cake and assume, for the sake of argument, that a recession is beginning. Um, is it not true that the, the, the way we're entering this, you know, all that talk about high prices cure high prices, but that assumes that production was meeting those high prices where this time it hasn't, right? Josh, Josh? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think this time is different and every sort of downturn and every bull market is a little different. And so, yeah, I think, uh, I think that's fair. Um, I've been looking at sort of the 70s as an analog for what's happening, with the one difference being that in the 70s, uh, OPEC production was held back uh, voluntarily, whereas now there may just not be that sort of short to medium term spare capacity available to bring on the market. And so in that regard, it's different, but um, in many ways, it seems similar. And so, um, but but every time is a little different. And like I was saying before, I think this, uh, this angle of governments subsidizing consumption um, could really raise the potential price uh, for demand destruction uh, to levels that are almost embarrassing to talk about. Yeah, no, I, I've, I've seen some of that work. Um, okay, so pivoting just a touch, um, and I understand why. You know, it's 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 not as important to the global economy. I mean, it's it's important, and I think we're realizing how important it is. But nat gas has also had a heck of a run, um, and you know, I know Chase, you've done a lot of work on this, Josh. I'm not sure you and I have really had a nat gas talk. I, I don't want to speak for you. I'm, I'm, I know your focus is primarily on oil, correct? I mean, you're, you're much more into that than nat gas, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, on the nat gas side, then we'll flip to Chase and then, then, then have Josh jump in there as well. Where, where are we at with nat gas? Um, you know, the, the, this giant deep, this giant spread that, that has opened up uh, between European prices and prices that we're paying here. Kind of walk us through what's happening in the nat gas world, Chase, and what you expect to see going forward. Yeah, nat gas is, is super interesting, and, and we just had the, a Freeport, down in Freeport near uh, near Josh, we had a, uh, an explosion that's taken some LNG exports offline for the next few months, and that really highlighted the fact that we have kind of a two, two, two different markets going at the same time, whereas you have the kind of domestic U.S. market, and then we have the LNG market, which is global. And you know, most of our exports are just all going to Asia and Europe, mostly Europe, since the invasion. Um, and gas prices have been extremely high in in Europe, and they have been relatively low in the U.S. until the last year. Um, and a lot of people are kind of talking about how eventually you're going to see the two markets sort of collide and, and kind of even out, roughly, you know, near the same price. Whereas now it's, you know, multiples higher uh, in the rest of the world than it is in the U.S. because we have such a um, a good production base. Uh, but but even in the U.S., you know, our our inventories are running significantly below where 
you know, they call it the five-year average or lat where they were last year. So gas is very expensive. Um, and it, when it comes to the global market and the LNG market, it really just comes down to it, more or less what, what Russia is doing and where their gas is or isn't going. So here in the last like week or so, they kind of piled on about the same time as the Freeport incident and started kind of pulling back uh, on their exports to to Europe. So all of a sudden, Europe is not really getting the LNG they thought or the pipe gas from Russia that they thought. So naturally, prices have spiked there. But what I will say about Europe, um, I mean, what really matters is, is, is going to be the winter. But their inventories have, have had a really good kind of six-month run. They, they just had kept the LNG coming, and Russia really hadn't until recently lowered their their flows to to europe so they've actually done a really good job especially compared to last year on on refilling during the summer um but kind of the other side of this whole story on 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 natural gas is just we've been getting really hot summers and last year was a reasonably cold winter so the hot summer we used to just look at gas and it was kind of just a winter story like right winter's all that mattered it would be the drawdown but now that the summers are so hot they're pulling so much electricity demand uh in the u.s specifically that it it's almost just as important to watch the heat in the summer now as, as it is to watch the, the the cold in the winter for demand. So uh, globally, it, it's still a pretty tight market, but I think we've seen more production response here than we than we have in oil so far. You, you, you're starting to see all all around. I mean, really globally, but Europe has actually kind of gotten serious about producing some of their own um, since since the invasion, and then obviously all over. Africa and the Middle East, they realize this is a giant opportunity to export to to Europe. So a lot of new projects are start, starting to kind of take shape. But a lot of that, you know, will be two, three, four years down the road. But that that production response is actually starting to happen on the gas side. Okay, one of the questions I had was the the, the issue that happened in Freeport. I was a bit surprised when I heard of the issue, and then watched the response of Nat Gas. I want to say it was like a knee jerk thirteen to fifteen percent down here in the U.S. Um, would I be right thinking that the reason that there was that drop in gas um, is because that is le- until that until that until that issue is brought back online or that refiner is brought back online um, that that gas stays here in the U.S. rather than being exported is is that yeah why that, that's that- exactly it yeah okay. it's just kind of a, a, a full stop just uh, binary thing it's just gonna, it's it's going to be here or it's going to leave and. As soon as that, that export terminal got hit, it's just, okay, well, that much more is going to stay here. And at first, everyone's like, oh, it'll be like three or four weeks, maybe six. And then they kind of come out and said, like, oh, well, maybe six months. And that, that was when you got that just giant drop in, uh, in U.S. gas and a giant spike in, uh, in like, the Dutch price. Right. That's, it's kind of, a, kind of an odd, uh, kind of an odd, odd deal. What, what, um, where is – how would you – are there similarities right now between – Nat gas and oil. How, how how would we explain that, Chase? How would you define that? How, how would we, you know, is is the nat gas market so tight? What do you see happening going forward? I, you know, I look at the spread between prices here in the U.S. and Europe and think that the jaws of that that alligator have to shut. Those prices have to come together. Uh, where where are we at in 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 the nat in the nat gas world? What is similar between the setup we see in oil? What is different? Kind of lay it out for us. I mean, it's similar just because both are reasonably tight. Both are expensive, you know, compared to the last decade. Um, and, and obviously, I mean, it's a very similar process to, to get them out of the ground. And, and they're 
very similar the way they're treated by regulators and everything so there, there's all those similarities but i i think i think oil and especially uh, you know refined products are much tighter than the natural gases right now uh, if you look at europe their storage is just under their the 10-year average um and and last year it was at a 10-year low so we're at we're seeing a situation where globally it's not quite as bad but at the same time this kind of reminds me of food where like you look at something like wheat if you actually look at like the total levels of wheat and wheat and storage and everything, we do not have a wheat crisis. We have a, a, a wheat export to the people that depend on export crisis. And it's kind of the same for gas where, you know, we have enough gas, but if you're, if you depend on nothing but LNG and you can't bid up one of the tankers to get, get yourself some in time, then you have a problem. So if you're, if you're Pakistan, you don't really have a lot of dollars and it's hard for you to compete for, uh, like spot LNG tankers, then well, you're gonna have a problem. So th- there are like isolated cases uh, where you, you're running into shortages. But you know, if you just look at it globally, if you look at US or, or uh, especially Europe at the moment, at least the, the inventories just they're not that bad. Okay. Now, now flipping over to Josh, we'll start we we'll start this conversation on Josh's end because I really want to hear what he has to say, and say, and then I'll flip back to Chase on this. W- with all this talk, kind of pivoting back to and then, Josh, if you have thoughts on Nagas, we would love to hear those as well. Um, but pivoting back to the regulatory side of it, all of this talk about, you know, an excessive profit tax, all of this price gouging, talking about legislation to bring it in. Um, how what impact? Let's say everybody decides to go ahead with some type of excessive profits tax or some type of price capping or something of that nature. What impact will that have on the market? Obviously, we've got to we've got to project that out a little bit because you know there could be a recession and all these other different factors. But let's say in a vacuum, um, you, you institute measures and legislation uh, of that kind. What kind of impact is that going to have on price? Um, and is it something that could incentivize the oil companies to do more production? I mean, walk us through what the impact. So, as as the people at home. Are you know talking? You know, are, are supportive? Oh yeah, we got to get after the oil companies. Price gouging. Walk us through, Josh. What kind of impact that would have on uh, global global oil prices, energy prices in general, and what that would do to production? Is that a viable solution? And do you think we'll see it? And if we do see it, what kind of impact would it have? So um, I think these are. Great questions. Um, just very briefly on natural gas. So um, in the U.S. and um, and a few other similar jurisdictions, uh, companies have pushed their production as much as they can uh, on existing production to try to get every spare molecule out of their wells and into sales uh, with prices a lot higher. I mean, gas was close to $9.50 in MCF. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, prior to the Freeport incident, now it's seven dollars, which is still very high relative to its five-year and even ten-year average. And so, um, there's also the effect that I described on the oil uh, shale wells here in the U.S., where the completion techniques have evolved uh, to have even higher initial production rates and then rapidly declining production thereafter, uh, even more than they had uh, previously. And so that's that's hurting associated gas production uh, that's coming from these oil-oriented wells. Uh, there is some additional drilling happening in the Haynesville and elsewhere for natural gas, um, but it doesn't seem to be sufficient so far 
to adequately supply the market, including export capacity. And so uh, the Freeport thing mattered a lot for price because um, it was so tight that freeing up some of these marginal uh, molecules really uh, helped. There, there was essentially demand destruction starting to get priced in and demand for natural gas is very inelastic. So um, the, the market was that tight and there was potential for price to go a lot higher. Uh, even with Freeport offline, prices are still quite high. Uh, it's been kind of impressive how well natural gas has held up despite this uh, LNG export facility down for potentially multiple months. And so, um, you know, if if the summer is uh, hot and the winter, uh, the coming winter is cold, uh, we could see uh, record high natural gas prices here in the U.S. And even if that doesn't happen, we could still see sustained higher prices. Um, on the on the windfall profits taxes and on the sort of drilling incentive taxes, like on, on one hand, there's my economics training, which says that if you uh, give companies a carrot and a stick, they'll behave according to those incentives. Uh, but there's also some real world experience, which is if you change the economic deal that economic actors have had and you do it in a way that they don't have any say over, um, you're essentially taking some of their economics or essentially uh, expropriating their property rights. And when you expropriate property rights, you introduce additional risk and um, of additional expropriation, as well as just, uh, it's, it's almost like a negative wealth shock uh, to the owners of those businesses, uh, as well as the managers of them. And so um, when, you, when you factor that in, you end up with a very different outcome than I think the economists that are advising these uh, different regulatory bodies or politicians, I think they're just not factoring that in. And it's a huge mistake and it's indicative of sort of uh, policymaking from the ivory tower or from a, a political perspective and not from a real world perspective. When you incorporate it, what you'll end up with is less activity, almost independent of what the incentives are. And it's really just a shame. It's indicative of uh, people walling themselves off and insisting. It's ironically an economics information problem. Um, and so, you know, I guess that's what I what I can say about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that I, I had several of our employees asking me about this uh, yesterday. And I said, well, hey, guys, um, if you increase the cost of doing business, do you think that's going to inspire people to do more business? Right. Like, so if, if you if you if you're going to put these taxes on, you think the response is going to be increased production, you know, which which out of one side of Biden's mouth, I hear him calling for and, and essentially ripping oil companies for what he claims they're, they're not getting out there, they're not doing their job, they're not producing, and then they're talking about taxing them. From an economics level, I kind of sit back and go, huh, <laughs> any time as a, as a legislative body that you want to see less of an activity, you tax it, right? Josh? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I think you're you're doing a better job of explaining it simply. Yeah. Like I think when you act negatively and you speak negatively towards an industry, it has a chilling effect and you end up with less activity and, and maybe you end up with more drilling, but maybe you have less other activity. And the more you try to regulate a market, the more rules, the more you try to centrally plan it, the more sort of uh, regula regulation failure you end up with. And so, I mean, it's a reason why in the end, centrally planned 
economies fail, um, they're just not as effective as um, allowing sort of decentralized actors that have local incentives to just do what they want to do. So basically, uh, industry does better uh, when left alone. Uh, the evidence is that the industry in- is inclined towards overproducing over time, <laughs> especially looking back at the last 10 years. And so it seems like a pretty big mistake uh, to try to implement these policies. And it-, it seems likely that they end up backfiring, that the companies end up earning even more money and that prices end up even higher. Yeah. Now that was sort of my read. Chase, what do you have to add to this discussion? And what would you what would your words be to legislators if they had the because I'm well, you know what? I shouldn't assume. I mean, perhaps your phone has been ringing from these legislators calling and wanting to get a read from the head of Pinecone Macro on whether or not they should. You know, maybe the White House has been calling you um, <laughs> if they did. And they said, hey, we're thinking about passing this tab. What would you tell them? What would your take be? Chase? Oh, we lost Chase. Oh, shoot. Hold on one second. Well, we lost Chase, guys. Uh, he, I just got a text from him, and he said that his Internet has died. Perhaps that's from a nat gas shortage or maybe an oil, <laughs> maybe an oil shortage. Um, anyway, Josh, so let's, let's, let's wrap this one up and, and just, again, trying to make it as simple for the folks to understand as possible um, and make it as, you know, bite-sized as possible. And, 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 you know, just, again, just as an effort to educate people so they really understand what's happening here. Um, <clears throat> if you my and, and correct me where I'm wrong, because I, I really want to hear your take on it, but just kind of setting it up with the way that I see it. Um, if when I look out at the world today, I don't hear anybody talking about solutions or plans or directives that are doing anything to address this issue. And um, from my understanding, from my perspective um, what that tells me is that this problem, it will wax and wane due to demand issues and, you know, exporting issues and one-off issues here and there and pr- potentially uh, recessionary issues and things of that nature. But my understanding is uh, until something structurally changes, until legislators make it easier to produce and, and get rid of some of the roadblocks, this is not an issue that's going to fix itself. Um, would you agree with that sentiment? Is this something that the industry operating the way it is now that in time will work out, um, you know, under under this type of scenario or do or do. And when I say scenario, I mean, the legislative attitude, the demonization and the villainization of of um, of these energy companies and these oil and, and nat gas producers. Um, is this something that can potentially just work out? under its own power or or are there structural things that have to change are there you know whether it's attitudes or legislation that needs to change banking policy uh i guess what i'm saying is that over time can the industry operating as it currently is under the legislative pressures that it is can it fix this problem or or do things structurally have to change on the legislative side and finance side for this problem to get fixed? 
So, so when you when you mention problem, I guess the real question is, what's the problem? So, from an industry perspective, right now, profits are great, right? And there are lots of roadblocks to drilling more, um, and those are solved from an industry perspective by higher prices. So, if the problem that you're talking about is high gas prices at the pump. Yeah, you really need um, much better energy policies to end up with more reasonable uh, and less volatile uh, gas prices at the pump. Um, from an industry perspective, the more that these terrible policies continue to be implemented, the more that uh, the president of the U.S., that the prime minister of Canada, that the prime minister of the uh, U.K., um, the more that they... Um, badmouth the industry, discourage participation in the industry, discourage investment in the industry, and then uh, you know call it names and say that it doesn't deserve to earn money. Uh, the higher the price at the pump is going to go, and the more money these ind- these companies are going to make. And it's really a, a almost I mean it's not exactly a one to one relationship, but there is a direct relationship between how our leaders are behaving and the rules that we have. And the profits generated by the industry. So the worse the rules are and the more negative they are to the industry, the more money uh, the industry is going to make. So as an industry participant, look, like I'm funding additional wells right now. And I think that there is a tremendous shortage. I don't think there's enough people like me. Frankly, most people like me went out of business at some point between uh, oil crashing in 2014 and then oil crashing several times in between then and now. Um I just don't think there's enough. So I can fund additional oil wells and that's not aggregated up to enough supply. So I think I'll make tons of money on the wells that I'm investing in, um, both through the companies that uh, I invest in professionally, as well as uh, private companies and other projects. And so there's an amazing opportunity to make a ton of money in this sort of environment. Um, but you know, unfortunately, that doesn't solve the problem, which is uh, if you're defining the problem as low, as there being too high prices at the pump wanting lower prices, uh, the current trajectory is higher prices, not lower. And it's partly why I'm so bullish on oil prices over the medium term. It just doesn't seem like this problem gets resolved over time by the industry making so much money that it can't help but invest despite all of the sort of chilling policy actions. Okay. Chase, are you I, I, you popped up again? You're, are you with us? I'm, right? I'm back. My rural at, Virginian internet has has come back to us like a like a phoenix from the ashes. Here he is. <laughs> um, I was speculating it was perhaps maybe a, a nat gas shortage that took you offline. Um, <laughs> that was last winter, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, what I was asking Josh, I, don't, I, I I'm assuming you didn't hear the question, but what I was saying was. Is this an, an issue, and, and I think Josh did a great job clarifying by what do you mean as an, as an issue uh, in terms of are you talking about a production issue or a price issue? As far as the public is concerned, especially legislators, right, the issue is higher cost. Is this issue, in your opinion, something that can be fixed over time by the industry as is, or do you need uh, – legislative action? Do you need attitudes to change? Um, what, what I'm wondering is, could you just bump around between 80 to to $100 oil and three years later this problem gets fixed? Or do you, you know, do you need legislative action that is essentially the opposite of what type of legislative action is currently being proposed? Do, do you understand the gist of my question? Yeah, I do. So I think 
I think it can take care of itself without a bunch of action, but it would be much more painful. Uh, I think I think the answer is to get you know some significant changes made more of that honestly than, than legislation or a regulatory really just comes down to investing so many people just won't touch the space and if you don't have more money going into the space you're just not going to get the production you need uh and and we're seeing that very slowly just now start to change uh smu uh, southern methodist down down in dallas there i know their fund finally is like all right we're going to go back into oil um BlackRock a little bit has kind of backed away from their extreme ESG position on on everything. So when you see start to see more of the like you know real money out there start to come back to the to the space that that's needed as much as anything. But at the same time, I, I think this is an area where political um, the kind of way, kind of way politics is this extreme left or extreme right. It really hurts because. Now, every time you have an administration and a Congress flip, you get you go like all in on oil or all out on oil. Like it, it's either the enemy or it's the answer, and that that creates a lot of policy uncertainty. And that's fine if if in in, in some businesses, but but in businesses where you're putting billions of dollars to work and over long long leads, you know maybe you're going to spend five billion dollars on a project that might make you money in six seven years. Like you, you really need to have have a firm footing on, on you know on what's going to happen in the future. So in in that sense, I think you know policy and and, and just politics in general is, is something that we really need to see kind of shored up to give people to make people feel comfortable with what the rules are going to be and what the climate's going to be whenever they want to you know put in some major investments because it's easy to yell at uh, all of these companies and and blame them now, but at the same time. You know, you're, you're doing nothing to make them comfortable with with significant investments. When, you know, e- even six months ago, whenever the energy secretary was asked about more domestic production, and she hysterically laughed. And th- now the answer is we need more domestic production. <laughs> well, you know, that's interesting. When six months ago you were laughing at the question, and now you're demanding it. You know, so it, we have to turn the noise down on all that, and and we have to kind of you know raise the the education level of 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 you know of everybody but especially the people in dc that are actually touching this policy um so that they actually understand how energy works you know i don't i don't know how you do that but and i don't care if it's a republican or democrat i just want people that that have a basic understanding of how this works if they're going to touch policy on it um yeah but, well and, and we, we, at least from my perspective when you hear these people talk i think that's the thing that is the most disconcerting to me is it is just 100 percent obvious I, that A, they're being disingenuous, or B, that they have absolutely no clue what they're talking about. And I think that that's really scary. And and, I, and I'll kind of give you guys my outlook. And then to tie this up, I'd like to hear if you agree, disagree, and uh, and your take on the same thing. I sit back and look at this, you know, the 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 path that we take or the trajectory that this goes, nobody knows because there's so many things that are going to influence the price of either nat gas and, and oil uh, over short periods of time. Um, and, and those, in my opinion, are, are almost impossible to, to, to project. Um, but in general, I kind of look at it, and the, and the setup looks to me pretty simple, which is we have ridiculous and wrongheaded energy policy that, is, that has been vastly responsible. Uh, for this for this current you know spike in prices, 
Um, and it seems to me that, that eventually the right practices and the right attitudes and the right legislation will be adopted, but that will only be done through pain, much higher prices. Um, you know, for instance, if you look at Biden, there's part of me that when I listen to Biden, I kind of sit there and think he knows this isn't the oil company's fault, but he's got a real political problem on his hands. Right? He came into office and he was telling the little girl or he was a Greta, the little girl, don't you worry, we're going to get fossil fuel companies. Right. He's got his base. Part of me is concerned that he understands what the problem is, but politically he doesn't have the cover to address it. Um, so my take when I see a setup like that is it will get addressed. It's just going to take much higher prices and to develop that political will. First, Chase, do you agree with that outlook? And if not, where, where, where am I wrong? Chase? Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. So obviously some of this is, is just pure politics. Like you, you got to just move, you got to shift the blame as much as you possibly can. But, but you and it, to me, it's not that hard to tell the difference between that stuff it's like price gouging. Like, I, I know they don't believe that, but the difference between that and then that, you know, like I was talking about the energy secretary laughing about the domestic production, like that, that moment seemed so real. Like, like, so there, there are times where it seems genuine and times where it, it seems like politics. Yeah. Um, and, and the reason I, you know, I, I think, you know, if you don't get any political help, people still really, really like money. So if oil is a hundred and nine dollars or something people are going to find a way to get some out of the ground like it, it's just at the end of the day people like money so the investment's going to come and and they're going to get it out of the ground even if that if it turns into nothing but you know the, the privates just completely taking over oil production then that's that's the way it would be but uh or you know you get to a point where you just have all the state-owned companies you know x us just go bananas at that point because they can't you know no one's going to stop them from doing it so you'll get the production if you have the high if you have high enough prices for for long enough i don't have any doubt about that it's just it's really about the the gap between now and there and and you know how ugly that can be yeah um and you know i i even think the economy can can handle 150 dollars oil fine it, it's really about not going from 50 to 150 dollars oil in, in a short amount of time that that's what's so disruptive yeah josh and in, in closing um what, what what would you say to my statement of when I look at this, it seems to me it looks as if there's an air of inevitability around it, which is the right decisions will be made in time. The question is, is how much pain will it cause? Um, do, would you agree with that assessment? If not, uh, set me straight. Yeah, so uh, I'm just finishing up our uh, monthly update uh, where we review some of uh, Buffett's uh, lesser-known writings uh, and tie them back to his recent purchases of Oxy and Chevron. And so <laughs> uh, I was just finishing up, and and you know uh, we're in good company. And so I think uh, I think he's betting on this, and you know has a lot of experience, and and frankly actually doesn't seem to like oil and gas companies much based on some of what he said in the '70s and '80s. And uh, hasn't really owned them for most of the history of Berkshire Hathaway. And so I think uh, I think when you have a brilliant, uh, obviously the best investor maybe in history from a track record perspective, uh, choosing to come back into the oil and gas space in size like Buffett did. And I, I know that's been talked about a lot, but I think people don't really appreciate just how 
how much of a hurdle he had to come in in size into oil and gas, particularly into Chevron and Oxy. Um, you know, I think I think we're in really good company, and I think I think a lot of what we talked about um, is likely to continue. Uh, unfortunately for the consumer, and fortunately for the industry. And you know, while it's a tough day with oil down a lot today, um, I think I think it's pretty likely, and it seems like Buffett is betting on um, oil prices being higher than they are, and oil and gas equities appreciating meaningfully from here. Yeah, well, I thank you both for joining us and and helping us sort this out. One of the things that I find amusing, and it's not surprising, and we've all been in markets long enough, one of the things that I find amusing is you get oil down, you know, 7 to 10% or whatever, and you expect to see a sell-off in energy prices. But one of the things that goes through my mind is, again, I was having this conversation with an existing client, and he goes, you don't think it's possible that oil go down, though, Zach? And I go, oh, yeah, it's going to be all over the place. It's a wild beast. You know, it it does what it does. And he goes, well, oil goes down. It's going to drag those things down. And I go, yeah, it's going to drag them down. But these things are priced you know, these things are priced ridiculously cheap as it is. And, you know, I, I actually look at the valuations of a lot of these companies and conservatively speaking, I think the price of these companies reflects more like a 60 to $70 oil price than it certainly does a hundred. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll certainly see what happens. I know that, you know, we're all on the same, on the same side. So maybe there's, maybe there's something we're missing, but, but again, thank you both for, for helping us clear this up. And for those of you at home, you can follow Josh at, uh, on Twitter at, at it's at bison interest, right? Yeah, that's right. And, uh, our website, uh, bisoninterest.com. Yeah, bisoninterest.com. And for those of you who don't know, Josh is a hedge fund manager and runs an energy and oil-focused hedge fund. You can contact him. Um, I think his track record speaks for itself. And getting to know Josh, again, I've said this last time he was on, um, if you're looking for more juiced-up exposure to energy, I'm not sure that there's a better guy to go talk to. Um, So, Josh, thanks again for being on. And and, um, Chase, you as well, really appreciate you joining us as always, clearing things up. As always, you can follow Chase at, on Twitter at Pinecone Macro. You can also get him at pineconemacro.com. And the other thing you got the the other thing is don't forget you can sign up for research from Chase. He's got several. Chase, run us really quick through the the research options you've got. Yeah, so you can find it on Substack, um, but also there's a, a weekly letter and a monthly letter. The weekly is kind of a uh, a tactical one, and the, and the monthly is kind of a more strategic letter. Okay, okay. And then what are the price? What are the prices? I mean, it's pretty reasonable. Can't people get your research for like your basic research letter for like thirty bucks a month? Yep. So you can get the Substack. There's a free Substack, a nine dollar Substack. The, the weekly letter is thirty three a month. And that price hasn't changed for four years, so inflation adjusted. It's really cheap, and then uh, and then you have the the monthly letter, which is is is, is a little more expensive. If you apply a hedonic adjustment to your prices, you could make the argument they've gone down. Yeah, um, you know I, they're kind of like oil. Well, I think they're negative now. <laughs> there you go, and and I can't speak highly enough for it. I mean, you guys know that. Uh, do I think his research is is worth it? Well. He's, uh, he's going to be joining Bulwark Capital full-time in about eight months. So that kind of tells you what I think. But I, I think there's very few I, – I, well, there's no. There's no greater bang for the buck on the research side, especially if you're after macro. So um, anyway, gentlemen, really appreciate you guys coming on, especially last minute to, to give our listeners an update on the oil and energy markets. And I wish you all much luck in the future and have a great weekend, guys. And, and uh, again, thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot. Thank you. 
Thanks, Vanna. It's good. It good to talk with you, Josh. Yeah, uh, same. All right, you guys. Well, that is it for today. Um, I hope that clears some stuff up. Hopefully, this can inform you. Hopefully, maybe this is an episode that you can send to friends having conversations so people understand that this is just nowhere close to as simple as people price gouging or Chevron trying to stick it to the middle class. Uh, this has been an issue that has been a long time in the making. And unfortunately, it's probably going to be quite a while to resolve it if the right steps are taken or just price goes way up, as our guests have told us. So anyway, hope you have a wonderful weekend. As always, we'll be back next week with a surprise guest. I'm not going to tell you who it is. You're going to have to tune in to hear it. Anyway, have a wonderful weekend. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.